All right, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be back in our series in Revelation this morning. We're working through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is no small study. As a matter of fact, I think we're about 28 lessons into Revelation, and we've only got to chapter 3. And so, uh, in all likelihood, the Lord will come back before we finish uh, this series. Uh, man, it, it's been certainly laborious, but it's been good because God promises some blessing connected with the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, if you, if you want to find Revelation 3, back up to Revelation 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. And, and so there is kind of a special blessing connected to the book of Revelation. God, God wants us to understand it. God wants us to be blessed uh, by the things in it. He wants us to keep the Word of God that we learn from it. It's not a book that you need to be scared of or afraid of or ignorant of as a believer in Christ. And so, and so we've been studying these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 for several weeks. These seven churches were real churches. They, they existed in the first century in Asia Minor. And Christ himself is addressing each of these seven churches personally. He actually has a letter that goes to each of these seven churches. And so, and so he's giving that to the Apostle John. And then that word of God is going to get to those seven churches. And, and so you need to know that those were real churches that had real challenges. And they had real opportunity to, to impact their community, their city for the cause of Christ. But they also had things to overcome. And so we want to look at those seven churches and practically say, well, look, we're a local church. We probably fall into one of those seven types of churches that, that God shows us in Revelation 2 and 3. And I think every church probably that's ever existed mirrors in some form or fashion one of those seven churches in Revelation. And then we've also said that those seven churches, because of John's perspective, they represent for us the entirety of church history. Because as John is writing this, the Bible says that he's standing, he's in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and he's looking backwards at the things that hast been. And so God has moved John forward in time and allowed him to look back at history. And as he looks back, he sees these seven churches, and these seven churches represent the entire, entirety of church history for us, from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church, and I think there's a slide, I think, further in the, in, the, in the notes, Derek, where you've got those seven churches in it, and it shows you the approximate time frame that each of those represent. And again, this is just inspirational application that, that there is a typology or a picture that God gives us. And so we've worked through each of these six churches. This morning, we're going to start studying the book, or excuse me, the church of Laodicea, the, the seventh church. Uh, the last church that Christ addresses in Revelation chapter 3. And that really takes us from the time in history from 1900 to present-day Christianity. So that includes us. If you're in the room today and you're a believer in Christ, there's going to be some very practical things from the church of Laodicea that God's going to reveal about our church and about churches in this time period. And so let's go to Revelation 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 22. I want to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray and then we'll spend a little bit of time in the Word of God together. So look at Revelation 3 and verse 14. It says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, 
These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears, hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so let's pray and consider these things. Father, we need you this morning. We thank you for the time uh, to corporately gather. We thank you for the, the time of worship. And, and God, we thank you for your word. And, and Lord, I pray for, for myself and I pray for our church. God, our, your Holy Spirit would teach us. You would guide us. You would, you would illuminate our eyes and, and help us to behold wonderful things out of your law this morning. Only you can do that. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that, that as we study this church, there are going to be some things that are difficult to, to hear and understand but, but, Lord, you can do that through your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you would have us to hear. And we'll give you the glory for that. And we love you, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. So, so we've been following kind of a basic outline for each of these churches that we've studied. And, and the first thing that we talk about in each of these seven churches is the church or the city uh, in which this church is located. And so in, in verse 14, the Bible says, "...under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans..." Right, and so we're going to talk a little bit about Laodicea for just a second. And historically, this city was founded in about 250 BC by a man named Antiochus II of Syria. He named the he named the city after his wife Laodicea. Smart move, by the way. I mean, if you're going to build a city, go ahead and name it after your wife because that gets you in good with the wife. Okay. And so Laodicea was, was a tremendous ancient city. It was a great banking center. It was actually one of the richest cities in the ancient world. It was so rich that an earthquake destroyed it in 60 AD. And because they were so wealthy and so proud, they refused any help from the Roman government system. And they rebuilt the city with their own funds. In other words, we don't need you. We don't need the government. We don't need your money. We're wealthy enough. We got it. We got it. It was also a tremendous garment-making center. They, they processed wool. They were famous for these woolen garments and these black tunics. It was a well-respected medical center. It had a, a famous medical school. They had certain ointments that were a part of their city. The one weakness as a city that it had was there was lack of adequate water supply. And so water had to be brought in from the outside. And so it is an interesting city. I think historically, uh, if, if you were to say, where's Laodicea today and where are the remnants and, and where are the remnants of this church today, you're not going to find anything. And as significant, as powerful it was and as rich as it was and well-renowned as it was, it actually ceased to exist. So historically, it was a significant city. Inspirationally, it, again, it represents for us the time in church history 
from 1900 to the present. And as we study those seven churches, each of those teach us something about church history. In Thyatira, the church was married to the pagan world and to the, to the church-state religion. Sardis was the church of the Reformation. Philadelphia was the mission-minded church period, 1600 to 1900. But Laodicea represents the modern church of the 21st century. And so when you study this city in the Bible, there's only, well, there's, there's two other places that you see connection to Laodicea, one of which is the book of Colossians. And so there's a strong connection between Laodicea and Colossae. As a matter of fact, when we read the book of Colossians, Laodicea shows up four or five times in the, in the book of Colossians. And so if you're a student of the Bible and you know that you, you understand the Bible by comparing Scripture with Scripture, if you know that you're a Laodicean Christian and, and we're in the Laodicean church age and God has the word Laodicea in the book of Colossians, you would do well to really study the book of Colossians, because that's going to help you overcome a, a Laodicean Christian mindset. We see it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes and he says, For I would that you, you, you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and as many as not have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul was burdened for the believers in Laodicea, even though he... he, he as far as we can tell from the Bible, we, we know he went through the area of Phrygia. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. It's quite possible that he led people to Christ and planted that church. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 to 15, it talks about a man named Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. He salutes you. He's always laboring for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Look what it says. For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea. I mean, Paul had great conflict for the believers in Laodicea. Epaphras had great zeal for the believers in Laodicea. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 4 and verse 16, Paul says, concerning the Colossae letter, he says, when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And the point is, there were a lot of people really concerned and caring and, and conflicted over the believers in Laodicea. When you, when you read 1 Timothy and you get to chapter 6, and the very last verse is verse 21, and, and I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but usually at the end of the passage, there's a little bit of postscript. There's a little bit of extra text in some Bibles that kind of give you a distinction of what's happening. And so 1 Timothy, the very, the very end of chapter 6, which is the last chapter, it says the first, the first epistle to Timothy was written from Laodicea, which is the chiefest city of Phrygia. And so this is a key city, and again, the, the first century and, and during the early church. When you go to Acts 16 and Acts 18, you find that Paul and his team went through Phrygia. They preached the gospel there. In Acts chapter 18, they came back through Phrygia, and they strengthened all the disciples. So this was an area that had significant investment from the Apostle Paul. It had significant investment of the Word of God. We know that there was a church in Laodicea. We know according to Acts chapter 18 that there were disciples in Laodicea. But unfortunately, and despite the fact, we're going to see that when Jesus Christ addresses this church, 
He has nothing good to say about it. He has absolutely nothing good to say about that. And man, that, that ought to give us a little bit of a red flag. I mean, there's a church there. There are disciples there. There are ministry leaders that are in conflict and have concern and zeal for the people in Laodicea. And yet when Christ looks at this church and writes to this church, he's, it's all bad news. So I'm glad you came this morning. <laughs> Come back next week and we'll, we'll, we'll do week two of Laodicea. I mean, it's just all bad news. And, and so listen, it's possible, man, it's possible to have a church and have disciples. And man, when Christ looks at it from his perspective, it's possible that there's nothing good about it. And that's sobering. That's sobering. But man, Christ sees it, Christ sees it the way it is, Right? And so what, what is it that makes this, this church of Laodicea so messed up? We're going to get into that. Okay, so, so we've, we've learned a little bit about the, the church. It's, it's, at, it's in Laodicea, the chiefest city of Phrygia. And then this outline that we're following, the second point always talks about Christ and the way that Christ reveals himself to each of these seven churches. And it's always unique and distinct to that church. In other words, Christ reveals himself in a way that makes that church understand something about his character and his nature. It's something that they need to know about him to overcome their circumstances. And so Christ reveals himself, look at verse 14, in three unique ways to the church at Laodicea. It says this in verse 14, it says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Okay, and, and, and so when we see the way Christ reveals himself to Laodicea, he reveals himself in a threefold manner. And number one, the first way he reveals himself is as the amen. Now that's pretty, that's pretty amazing to me. That's pretty amazing. He, he actually takes the name, the, capital A, the Amen. That, that's a proper name given to Christ. And listen, when you study the names of Christ in the Bible, and we don't have time to exhaust it, man. We'd be here all morning. But the, every name of Christ in the Bible is important. It's significant, and it teaches something about him. I mean, listen, Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the bread of life. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the Savior. He is the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Rock. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the Bridegroom. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And He is the Almighty. And listen, there are so many more names that He has. That's not a, a complete list at all. But at this point in Revelation and to this church, He gives a name that we've not seen in Scripture up to this point. And His name is... The Amen. It's the Amen. And listen, the word Amen literally means true. Or it could be translated and defined as so be it. It's the affirmation of truth. And that's why when you hear good preaching, you need to say that, by the way, in a sermon. Because what you're affirming is that what the Word of God says is true. You don't say it to stroke the pastor's ego or, or to somehow rile him up. 
If something is book, chapter, and verse, that means it's true, and we confirm that by saying amen. Well, listen, Christ takes on the actual name of the amen. He's true. So be it. It is truth. And that's who Christ is. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father by me. And, and, and listen, this church at Laodicea, what they needed, what they needed to understand about Christ is that he is the authority. He's true. He is the amen. He is, thus saith the Lord. And can I just tell you, this church needs to know that about Christ. Man, the pastors of this church aren't the authority of this church. The deacons are not the authority of this church. There's not a single family that's the authority of this church. The authority of this church is the amen. It's the one that's true. It's the one that thus saith the Lord. As a matter of fact, when you read the Bible, the very last word in your Bible is the word amen. Revelation 22 and verse 21, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, period. Amen. So be it. It's true. I'm affirming that what John just said is true because it's Christ. That's how Christ revealed himself first and foremost to the church at Laodicea as the amen. Number two, he revealed himself as the faithful and the true witness, the faithful and the true witness. And, and, and so in my notes, I just wrote down two statements. Number one, Christ is a faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. Proverbs 20 and verse 6 says this, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. And a lot of times we use that verse as, as we talk about discipleship. We're looking to invest in faithful men who will invest in faithful men. But can I just tell you that, that as we search for faithful men, that, that search sometimes is hard. They're, they're rare. They're very scarce. But let me just tell you that there is one faithful man for sure, and his name is Christ, right? Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, and I don't think, I don't think these are on the screen, so you can, you can jot them down and, and, and look them up, but just listen. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We even saw earlier in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 that Jesus Christ is called the faithful witness. And, and can I just tell you, he's talking to a church that is unfaithful. And he's reminding him, he's reminding them of who he is. He's faithful even when we're not. He's faithful even when we're not. And so Christ is the faithful witness. And then secondly, Christ is the true witness. And that, that, that aspect of his character speaks to his deity because only God is true. I mean, I mean, I mean it tells us in Revelation 3 and verse 7 when, he, when he's writing to the Philadelphia church, these things saith he that's holy and he that is true. Romans 3 and verse 4, yea, God forbid, let God be True and every man a what? And so listen, Christ is true because he's God and it reflects his deity. And can I just tell you, man, the church of Laodicea, they weren't a faithful witness. And the truth is they weren't a true witness. 
because they were born-again believers, supposedly following Christ. And yet when Christ looked at their church and Christ looked at, at them and their example and their witness, well, it wasn't a true witness. It wasn't a faithful witness. It wasn't like Christ. And, and so we as a church, we need, we need to be challenged by that. Your faithfulness and the truth of your witness ought to mirror Christ. It ought to mirror Christ. So you just be as faithful as Christ is and as true as Christ is, and I think the Lord will work out the details. The Lord will work out the details. Just be faithful and true because Christ is faithful and true, and that's how he revealed himself secondly to this church. And then thirdly, he revealed himself as the beginning of the creation of God. He revealed himself as the beginning of the creation of God. And don't let the word of mess you up there. Christ is not the beginning of God's creation. He's not a created being, as some cults would say. He's not the object of God's creation, as, a, as in a created being. He is the creator of God's creation because he is God. He is the beginning. He, he, he is the one that created all things. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ's beginning was not in Bethlehem. Christ is the creator of all things. And so he's the dynamic force behind creation. Man, if, it's interesting that he's called the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. There he is. He's there. It's him. It's Christ. And, and listen, he is the, he is the creator maker and sustainer of all things. He made it, he created it, and he sustains it. Actually, without him, we would all cease to exist. He puts the air in our lungs. He holds our cells together. Man, he is the sustainer of this universe. And, it, and he's revealing himself to this church as the, the creator, the one that, that is the beginning. That's his character. That's his nature. That's his person. person. And so Christ revealed himself in, in three unique ways to this church because they needed to know that, man, his, his word is authoritative. He is the amen, that his witness is faithful, and that he's all-powerful. That's what they needed to know. Okay, so now let's get to the commendation because the, the third thing that we always talk about in, the, in these churches is, man, what does Christ look at this church and say, here's what you're doing right. Here's what I'm commending. Here's what I see that, that's positive. And in your blank, point number three, the commendation is, is none. Nada. If you speak Spanish, nunca, right? It's nothing. There's nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine in all of Christ's grace and mercy, there is not one single thing that Christ could muster up and say positively about this church. Nothing. And the old songwriter of old, right, if you can't say something good, it's better to say nothing at all, right? And so Christ says, okay, got it. There's nothing, there's nothing to say. That breaks my heart. Because it, here are born, born again, blood-bought, spirit-filled, Bible-carrying believers that God says, I can't, there's nothing to commend. There's nothing to commend. And man, I wonder, in our culture of Christianity, 
how many churches Christ would look at today and say, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. Doesn't mean we don't gather. Doesn't mean we don't sing. Doesn't mean we don't preach. Doesn't mean we don't attempt to do ministry. But man, God looks at things a little different than we do. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing, there's nothing to commend. And so immediately we have to jump to the next point, which is the correction, right? Because, because in every one of these churches, if there is correction needed, Christ corrects his church. And by the way, we saw last week the church of Philadelphia, and we saw several weeks ago the church at Smyrna, are the only two churches that Christ did not correct. There was no written correction for two of those churches in the book of Revelation. And, and there's no written commendation for one of those churches, and it's the church of Laodicea. And so let's go back to verses 15 and 16, and we'll, we'll kind of wind things down this week on these verses. Go back to verse Verse 15, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So let's talk about this correction that God gives the church of Laodicea. Number one, in your notes, it was a spiritually tepid church. It was a spiritually tepid church. It was a lukewarm church. It was, it was not hot. It was not cold. And Christ says to this church, I know thy works. And, and just a disclaimer, Christ knows what goes on inside every church. Now, let me assure you that you don't. You don't know what goes on inside this church, much less any other church in this city. You don't know the half of it. And the truth is, I don't either. I'm usually the guy that is the last to know everything. And that's just the way it comes in ministry. But, but let me assure you that you don't know what's going on. You don't have it all figured out, but, but Christ does. Christ absolutely does. He knows what's going on in this church and every church. And because of that, he can give a proper assessment so this spiritually tepid church, Christ looks at it and he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. And so this is the church of the middle of the road. And, and this is the church that avoids any extreme at all cost. This church isn't as cold as ice and it's not hot as fire. And can I just tell you, listen, we, we can relate to what Christ is saying. Listen, in our culture, you either like iced tea or you like hot tea, right? Iced tea people, hot tea people, room temperature tea people. You're a weirdo. All right, I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling you, you're, you're just proving the point. You're just proving the point that you are riding the fence, man. Kate, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to make, 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 make good use of that illustration, man. Listen, nobody in their right mind would drink room temperature tea. Can I tell you? I don't care if it's sweet tea or unsweet tea. Listen, if you drink unsweet tea, you're just poisoning yourself, all right? There's just, there's just no sense in it. As a matter of fact, we went to, we went to Ohio last week you know, for Park's, Park's wedding, Park and John's wedding, and uh, we go to this restaurant for the rehearsal dinner, 
And uh, it was very nice. It was catered. I probably ate one of the, one of the top three steaks in my life uh, last Friday. It was fantastic. But the waitress came and was like, what can I get you to drink? And, and of course, I asked for, I said, do you have sweet tea? She goes, well, <laughs> I can bring it and uh, I can bring you some sweetener. I just said, stop. Just bring me like water. <laughs> you know, don't even try. Whatever you have uh, is poison. I don't want it. Okay, so... Uh, I said, we're from Alabama, if you can't tell by the accent, and we will not drink that, okay? So, yeah, man, nobody drinks that mess. Nobody drinks unsweet tea. Nobody drinks room temperature stuff, man. It's iced tea. It's hot tea. Let me, let me personal love language, coffee. Coffee's made to be drunk hot. And if you're a woman, it's made to be drunk iced. I said that to try to offend as many people as I could. But can I just tell you, nobody that's worth their two cents about them would ever drink coffee room temperature. As a matter of fact, I started like on my, on my coffee and I set it down and I know when I get done with this sermon, if I go pick that cup back up and take a sip, what Christ did and threatened with this church is going to happen right here, man. I'm going to spew that mess out of my mouth. It's disgusting. Nobody does that. So here's the point. Listen, there are things that are supposed to be hot, and those things need to be hot. Soup needs to be hot. Coffee needs to be hot. Food needs to be hot. I mean, if you go to a restaurant and they bring your food out and it's room temperature, you get mad. I mean, you send that junk back, throw it in the microwave at a bare minimum. And they can't even do that. You know, they can't take the food back into the kitchen, which is really weird. Whatever. So now you've got to wait 20 more minutes as they cook it again. And then they spit on it because you sent it back. Whatever. <laughs> At least it's hot. I will take hot food with your saliva any day, okay? Because I'm not eating the room temperature stuff. The stuff that is hot is supposed to be hot. And listen, what's supposed to be cold needs to be cold. Things like popsicles. Do you understand... Do you understand that a popsicle that's not cold is pointless? Do you understand that ice cream that is melted is a waste? I mean, listen, we, we find ourselves as the Suge family somewhat of ice cream connoisseurs. If it ever is melted, like it did just make survive the trip home, or sometimes we didn't shut the freezer door good or something happened, listen, it ruins it. It's supposed to be cold. It's not enjoyable. You can't use it if it's not cold. And, and I'm just telling you, there, there are things that are supposed to be hot. There are things that are supposed to be cold. Man, as it relates to Christians, Christians ought to be hot. Man, they ought to be on fire for the Lord. And lost people ought to be cold. They ought to be turned off to the things of God, to the Word of God, to Christ. And can I just tell you, man, here's a church that somehow got comfortable in the middle. It got comfortable in the middle. But God's not like that. You see, God's an extremist. And you may not like that statement, but it is in the Bible. The, the principle is in the Bible. God's an extremist, whether you like it or not. God said, I would rather you be hot or cold. I, with God, his extremes are so extreme that it's either up or down with God. It's either heaven or hell with God. It's either lost or saved with God. It's either reward or loss 
And there is no in-between. There is no in-between. And what we find in Laodicea is the chameleon church that professes that they know Christ, they profess they have a Bible, they profess that, man, they're a church, they're doing what God calls them to do, and yet we find them in complete apostasy. You see, they're close enough to God to get comfort from the Word of God, but they're far enough away from God to be chilled by the world. And see, God would rather you be in the freezer or in the frying pan. But in this church, it's neither. It's right down the middle. They're straddling the fence post. And God says, here's what I think about that. Verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's strong language. It makes God sick. It, it, it makes God not be able to stomach the thought of a church or Christians who are supposed to be hot to somehow swing back to the middle. The first mention of that word spew in the Bible is Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 and 28 through 28. And specifically, what God is talking about is the nation of Israel. And he's talking about, listen, if you will keep my statutes and my judgments and not commit any of these abominations, neither of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth with you, for all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled. God is saying, if you'll keep my statutes and judgments, if you'll keep them, the land will spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. And if you know anything about the Old Testament and how God moved Israel from Egypt ultimately to Canaan. There were wicked men in Canaan. And that's why God judged them and God used a nation to run them out of their own land. But God warned Israel, listen, if you get into Canaan and if you don't keep my statutes, I'm going to spew you out of the land just like I spewed those wicked men out. I'm going to spit you out. You're going to end up departing from the land. It makes me sick. You see it again in Leviticus 20 and verse 22. Ye therefore shall keep all my statutes and my judgments and do them. The land, whether I bring you to dwell therein, spew you not out. And so for Israel, it had everything to do with their walk with God. It had everything to do with their fellowship with God. God said, there's some things that make me sick. And one of them is a tepid church, which means it's tepid Christians. Believers that should be on fire for the Lord and yet have somehow got comfortable, comfortable being less than hot. Not cold, but just not on fire. I wonder how many churches we have like that in the 21st century. I wonder how many Christians we have like that in the 21st century. So this, this, was, a, this was a tepid church. Number two, it was a self-deceived church. And please give me grace, but Look at what the Lord says in verse 17. This church had actually deceived itself. Christ says, because thou sayest. And I want you to know that Christ not only knows the works inside of a church, but he also knows the words inside of a church. Christ knows what's being said. That ought to 
That ought to squash every bit of the murmuring and gossip in any church, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Because thou sayest. And, and let me just tell you, listen, Philadelphia was the church of the open door. God put before the church of Philadelphia an open door, and he said, go through it. And they did, and they reached the world with the gospel. But can I just tell you that Laodicea is the church of the open mouth. It's the church of the open mouth. Because this church has something to say. And boy, we got no shortage of that in modern-day Christianity. Everybody, as, as Paul said in the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, man, how is it every time you come together, every one of you have a psalm, everyone has a doctrine, everyone has a tongue, everyone has a revelation, everyone has an interpretation. You see, the Laodicean church had no shortage of words. They just had a shortage of works. They weren't doing anything. Well, what are the words that they said? Number one, they said, I'm rich because thou sayest, I am rich. Listen, historically, Laodicea was a rich and wealthy city. And this church had a very high opinion of itself. It was rich. And it had no need, not even of God. I'm not sure if these material possessions and what we call blessings aren't necessarily a hindrance to our churches. We're scrambling 15 minutes before service begins to figure out why lights are flickering. Why is it throwing weird color on the wall? I don't know why. <laughs> Just unplug it. <laughs> we don't need it. That's, that's the story of modern Christianity, man. We're rich. They also said that we're increased with goods. And can I just tell you, as, as quote-unquote wealthy and as quote-unquote materially blessed the church is in the 21st century, man, we're missing some things. Luke 12 and verse 15, the Bible says, He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. And a church's existence doesn't consist of the abundance of the things it possesses either. As a matter of fact, there's only three things that are eternal. God is eternal. The Word of God is eternal. And the souls of men are eternal. And if we'll just kind of focus on those three things, our worship of God, our witness for God, and our time in the Word of God, well, some of these other things that become distractions to us will, will just fade in the background because they're not eternal anyways. But man, here's a church that was rich and increased with goods. And then thirdly, they said, I have need of nothing. And that sounds like the prayer meeting of most Baptist churches. Hey, what can I pray for you about? Nothing. I'm good. I'm good. Nothing. Oh, let me think about what can I pray for you about? Uh, oh, nothing. Are you kidding me? I mean, are we okay this morning? Listen, you had a need when you came to Christ for salvation. And, and last time I checked, after you got saved, you still got some needs in your life. And what you need is, is to have a right relationship with God. What you need is to grow in the Word of God. What you need is to be active in the ministry that God's given you. What you need is to be preparing your life to see Christ face to face. 
I think we got some things to pray about. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. When we don't pray corporately, when we don't pray individually, what we're telling God is, I don't need you. I tell you it was going to be tough this morning. Okay, I just make sure. Thirdly, we see that this church is a Christ-corrected church. It's a Christ-corrected church. And so after Christ reveals the Laodicean evaluation of themselves, Christ gives his evaluation of this church. And he, and he begins by saying, and knowest not. And again, this church's evaluation of itself was skewed. It was absolutely wrong. As a matter of fact, it was incorrect. It was an error. And now Christ looks at this church and he says, man, don't you know that you're wretched? When you study that word in the Bible, you, you land back in Romans chapter 7. And as Paul is going through his battle, the war that he's facing with himself, the, 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 the battle of the enemy, enemy, so to speak, the war against his flesh, he said in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see, Paul was wretched because he, he had a flesh battling the spirit. He had a sin nature and a new nature. He had an old man and a new man. And listen, that battle is real. And if you don't recognize it, you're already losing. It was a struggle that he had in the flesh and the spirit, and the battle happens in the mind. And man, he says, I'm wretched. And Christ looks at this church and says, man, you guys don't even know it, man. You're wretched. You're losing the battle. You don't even realize it. You're wretched. Then he says, secondly, you're miserable. You're miserable. Job 16 and verse 2, when Job has these counselors that, that are trying to quote-unquote minister to him, Job's going through the, the most significant tribulation of his life. And it says, he, he says of his counselors, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. You're not helping the situation. You're actually adding to it. These, these miserable comforters that Job had, it had everything to do with the words that they were speaking. And they were making him miserable because he was listening to the wrong voice. God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19 that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. And, and, and can I just tell you, listen, there, there are a lot of Christians probably in this room and there's a lot of Christians in this city that think that somehow their relationship with Christ is, is some kind of magic genie in the bottle to get what they want in this life now with no hope or plan or understanding of eternity, with no hope or plan or understanding of the judgment seat of Christ. Listen, if you're living for this life now, and your hope in Christ is for this life now, 
Well, that leads to a miserable Christianity. It's a miserable Christianity. You sound miserable all the time. Well, I believe it. If that's the way you view the world, if that's the way you view your biblical Christianity. God says to this church that they were poor. And listen, they weren't poor because of material possessions, because they were rich and they were increased with goods, but they were poor because they hadn't earned any rewards for the judgment seat of Christ. As the saying goes, they were all cowboy hats and no cattle. You'll get that tomorrow. It'll, it'll, sing, it'll land tomorrow. Just, just think about it. They were all cowboy hat, no cattle. They didn't have anything to show for themselves, for the ministry that God had called. And then God says that they were blind. They couldn't even see themselves the way Christ saw them. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look on the screen. It's verses 5 to 9. We're done after this. Well, we've got one more point and we're done. But, but can I just tell you that it is possible for you as a believer in Christ to be blind to the gospel. God tells us that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And then have your eyes enlightened by the gospel and receive Christ, but then also go back to being blind again. That is a possibility for every Christian. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-9, to nine, it says, Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brother, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, God has a strategy for you to add some things sequentially to your faith. If these things are in you and abound, they make you that you should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind. You say, well, man, I'm a believer. You can be a believer in Christ and be blind. You can be a church and be blind. You see, a church or a believer in Christ that refuses to grow and refuses to add some things to the foundation of their faith, who finds their solace in money and possessions and their own self-evaluation, and they equate spirituality to riches and possessions and, and no need in their life. Well, God looks at that and says, you know what, you're blind. You're blind. Blind is what you were before you got saved, by the way. But blind is what you become when you refuse to grow. The last thing that Christ says about this church is, you're naked. And, and we don't have the time. But 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 10, talk about how our hope is that we're clothed upon with our house from heaven. Verse 3 says, If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And there is a potential, even as a believer in Christ, to come through the judgment seat of Christ. And listen, your salvation is secure in Christ, but your reward and inheritance certainly is not. That's something that you have to be faithful with, and the Lord has to reward you. And here's a church that's naked, man. Tell them I'll call them back. <laughs> Again, I, I don't think as, as Christians and churches we really understand that the significance of 
man standing before the Lord, giving an account at the judgment seat of Christ, and potentially walking out of that ashamed. So Christ is warning this church, man. He's like, when I see you, man, you're, you're, you're a mess. As a matter of fact, it would be the, the full extreme opposite of the way they evaluated themselves. <laughs> now you talk about God as a God of extremes. I mean, we're rich and increase the goods, and we're good. And God says, bro, you're miserable, poor, blind, naked. That's a little bit different. Okay, so, so where do we wind this thing down? We wind it down in verse 18, and we're going we're gonna to kind of punt to part two for next week. But let me just give you the encouragement because, man, a lot of that was like, oh, that's hard to, that's hard to receive. God said in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. And, and we'll go through the rest of that verse next week. But, but what God offers this church is counseling. And you say, finally, man, well, listen, this church needed counseling, but the counseling came from Christ himself, and it came from the Word of God. God gave his counsel to this church to give them an opportunity to repent. And so what can we learn from, from Laodicea this morning? And I know, man, today's, today's kind of one of those heavy ones this morning, but, but we need to consider based on the authority of Scripture, number one, we need to consider that self-evaluation of ourself and self-evaluation of our church is no guarantee that it matches God's assessment and evaluation. We, we often think better than things really are. And yet the Word of God is able to break through our assessment and give us clarity. Number two, we need to realize that refusal to grow makes us blind to the spiritual reality that we're really in. So as a church, if we don't mature, we won't really see ourselves, and, and we certainly won't see the ministry that God has given us the way we should. And as individuals, if we refuse to go, we can go right back to being blind, which is the very thing that God saved us from before we knew Christ. And can I just give you the last point? Number three, man, material possessions and wealth can become a false sense of success. Man, the, the stuff doesn't matter. It's God. It's the souls of men. It's the Word of God. That's all that matters. And at the judgment seat of Christ, that's all that's going to matter. And listen, every church needs to consider that, and every Christian needs to consider that. Man, it's not a, if, if anything, we just use the stuff to invest in those three things, and we don't even have to have the stuff. Air conditioning is nice, though, right? Even, though, even when it's not fully functioning, it kind of helps your neighbor tolerate you for like an hour as you listen to the sermon and not you know, sweat all over them. And so, man, listen, I know this morning is hard, but, but we got to see this church, man, that was a real church full of disciples, and there is potential that there are churches and Christians, when God looks at them, there's just nothing good to say. Let's don't be that kind of church. Let's don't be that kind of Christian. Man, listen, if you're like that this morning, the good news is, in verse 18, God brings his counsel to you so that you can change. Even in Laodicea, there was a chance for repentance. There was an opportunity to turn. And so let's, let's claim that promise 
And let's come back next week as we continue to learn. Let me pray for us. Our time is done. Let me pray for us as we dismiss. Father, we do love you this morning, God. I thank you for this church. 